Welcome back. This is episode 45 Five. of Pathological Highlights. Uh, I'm Ben Marshall, and co-hosting, as always, is Tom Major, and old boy, we've got a fun episode this bi-week, or fortnight. Uh, yes, it should be a good one. Only only the king of cobras itself. The, the that cobra. one snake that Ben never stops harping on about. We've He's finally whittled me down, we're going to do an episode on it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's what it was. It was me constantly berating you until... Uh, I, I get to talk about the thing that I spend all day of every day uh, reading and writing about. <laughs> At least it's not toads. I mean, I could, you know, I've got toad papers. I could pull some toad papers out if you want. If Just change a, this on the fly. If a toad paper comes up today, I'll be shocked, but I won't be that surprised. I'll be disappointed more than anything. Yeah, no, I, 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 to be honest, I don't have any forced segue to talk about toads this time. I bet you could find one. But anyway, joking aside, I am actually really looking forward to this episode. Um, yeah, we're talking about king cobras, the largest venomous snake in the world. I mean, what's cooler than that? Well, you uh, say largest. I've, I've never written largest in anything because... Longest. Exactly. There is, this that, is, there is that sort of, oh, but what if a Bushmaster can be heavier? So that is the number one first tick on the pedantry count of Ben and King Cobras today. <laughs> So many times that happens. Uh, oh. Yeah. Okay. So they're not the they're not the largest because large. What does that mean? Maybe large means like the most voluminous. Yeah. Or, or maybe maybe you can just go personality wise. They do have big personalities. They do, but they I've never are larger a, than life. I've never met a bushmaster to know their personality. Well, I mean, no, because they're, they're timid. You know, they don't they don't show themselves off. They don't get out on the town like King Cobra is. You see. That's, okay. Uh, yeah, they're a little bit more subtle. Yeah, I, well, I, have, I don't know. I've never met. I've never met a bushmaster. No, not One me. Day. I would like. I would like to. Yeah, I'd like to. Um, but yeah, so this by week we're talking about king cobras. Papers generously provided by the man himself, Ben Marshall, um, which is very exciting. Um, one of them I actually hadn't read up until this episode, which is not cool, but that's where it was. <laughs> but I'm hey man, you're, not meant, you're not meant to admit that to me. I thoroughly enjoyed it. Well, it hasn't been out very long, in, in fairness. Um, oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but yeah, no, like... The so yeah, we're going to do a couple of papers, the first of which is about King Cobra spatial ecology. The second one is about, unfortunately, King Cobra persecution, because um, human beings and gigantic animals don't usually live well alongside each other, um, mm-hmm. which is unfortunate. But hopefully... Because both Ben and I, obviously much more so Ben, but I was kind of there for some of the time that Ben was studying King Cobras. So hopefully I'll have a couple of anecdotes about King Cobras. Well, I think, uh, yeah, I mean, saying me studying them, I'm only part of, I want to put this out right at the very beginning. This is, I am part of a team. This is not, this is not me. I did not start this project. Uh, yes, I've been dealing with paper writing and paper analysis and, ongoing stuff but uh currently the team's headed up by max jones doctoral student candidate student i always forget the difference or like we're encouraged to call ourselves um phd researchers oh well then that's a nice catch-all so the team's currently headed up by max jones who's co-author on both of these and originally the whole thing was set up by uh colin strang and really 
I'm just here filling in some gaps and getting stuff out at this point. Pushing pushing things along in a little bit, sort of other ways, but uh, it's, calling it my research is a gross, gross mistake. <laughs> okay. You were something to do with it, but not entirely to do with it. Um, right. And as, as evidenced by the long numbers of authors on these papers, and um, yeah, it's mm. exciting, I know, you know. I know most of these people and um, there's lots of good folks. So, yeah, it's a nice opportunity for us to highlight not only your work, but the work of like many of our friends. So it should be a fun episode. Yeah. And you get to talk about King Cobras, which is always a plus. Uh, do you want to, you know, without further ado, just get on and talk about the first paper? Yeah. So the first one is Marshall. We know him. Strine, Jones, Archawakom, Silver, Suanwari and Good. 2018, Space Fit for a King, Spatial Ecology of King Cobras, Ophiophagus, Hannah, in Saccharat Biosphere Reserve, Northeastern Thailand, published in Amphibia Reptilia. So, Ben, who is responsible for the pun in the title? That was actually uh, Sam Sam Smith. Oh, uh, really? Okay. Ah, very over good. A, over a discussion at dinner. Space Fit for a King, I like yeah, it. Yeah, it's a fun one. <laughs> um... <laughs> So yeah, should we talk a bit about like what is what is a king cobra? In summarize for me what a king cobra is for anyone who's listening and doesn't know. What's uh, what are what are what are our management keywords that we like using? Uh, large, venomous, elapid, uh, persecuted. You said large. Uh, you said you never say large. You just drop large first. Thing. Oh I, I, no no no. I've poisoned the well. I've poisoned the well. Oh, okay. They are large. They are large. No, they, they are, are large. Like, you can't deny that. Mm. Uh, sometimes say obligate, as in only meat. Predator throws gets thrown in there. Uh, I've I've started using self-regulating, self-regulating as a descriptor for them. How are they self-regulating? What do you mean? What do you mean by that? Well. They seem, I don't know, but this is, it might be a bit of a funny opinion. Um, to me, it feels like they're sharing a lot more traits in common with other large terrestrial predators than they are like mesopredators. Because an adult king cobra around here doesn't really have consistent predator or natural predator. So in that sense, it seems to be acting in a more... Uh, in a way more similar to self-regulating predators like, well, large mammalian carnivores or, or birds of prey than other mesopredators uh, regulated by a trophic level above them, keeping their so, numbers down. So what you mean is that the main predator of adult king cobras is bigger king cobras? Yeah, or nothing at all. Or just nothing, yeah. Yeah. I, yeah, I'm, yeah I'm potentially. It, uh, the problem is we don't, have, we don't really have the data to back what I'm saying up. Um, yeah. Because there are some pretty anecdotally, feisty, feels right. big animals in Southeast Asia that, and, you know, that overlap with these these snakes. Like, I mean, a dole is a pretty big but wild would a, dog. Would There's a bears. dole bother? And a bear bother going for a king? The risk-reward there seems... Yeah, I suppose unless uh, unless they had some kind of immunity to the venom, which is obviously a complete yeah. unknown, it would make absolutely no sense. Because... Yeah, I mean, look what a king cobra bite does to a person. I mean, you only have to scale a person up a few times and you get a bear. So, um, yeah. yeah, it's definitely conceivable that they'd know better than to muck about with them. And that hood is 
pretty unmistakably. I mean, in one of these papers, you talk about the aposomatic uh, warning of the hood. I mean, it's pretty damn recognisable, isn't it? Yeah, you match that up with a nice uh, deep growl. Yes, snakes hiss, but really, king cobras growl. And from on top of that, actually, there aren't many of the super large terrestrial predators hanging around um, our population of kings, anyway. I, I don't. I I like to think that they're pretty uh, top when it comes to uh, trophic level, and I think uh, functionally that's quite important. Yeah. So they're these massive snakes, up to six meters long. Um, how much can they? How much 5. can they 8. weigh? 5.85 is supposedly know- the record from Southern Thailand, right? I know that in the first paper it said up to six meters, and yeah. in the second one you guys have changed it to five point eight five. <laughs> well, the reason the reason is so this is the little peek behind the curtain of reviewers. Um, the up to six meters one, I mean that is fact, you know, up basically saying they're all less than six meters. Yeah, that's pretty true. Um, second one we did have that reviewer was saying, oh no, it'd be nice to have a more precise number. Like, okay, what can I find? can find the 5.85 that's quite widely cited um and cited in you know all right articles out and about i it's very tricky to find the original report of many uh many sizes for king cobras yeah like it tends to be reported in field guides and stuff and then it's a little bit sort of someone else has cited that field guide and it gets lost along the way i I'm confident in saying that there are big king cobras, like those sort of high five meters, but uh, actually pointing to exactly the records associated with those, a little bit tricky. It's one of those ones, isn't it, where we've talked about this on the podcast before, where things are said so many times and then after a while people just accept that it's a fact and you lose track of where it originally came from. It's just sort of so firmly seated in the collective consciousness of people who work on a particular animal and it's almost a little bit irrelevant for the population we're working with because we haven't seen a king cobra over five meters here Uh, i think the biggest we've seen are like 4.4 4.4 that's a seriously big it's a huge snake oh yeah Yeah. huge but it's weird a big i mean i've never seen a king cobra that big but i've seen them up to like three and a half probably and um Mm. when you see a snake like that because at least for me, I'm accustomed if I see a snake that big for it to be a python. So it's this big chunky thing. But yeah, king cobras, you just follow in the body and it just goes on and on and on and on. And it never gets that wide. They're pretty slender snakes. Obviously, yeah. being as they eat, they predominantly eat snakes. So right, they don't need a big fat body. Um, they're not constrictors either. So they're just these really, 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 really long tubes with <laughs> a relatively small head as well, right? Wouldn't you say? Like, they don't need that... Well, certainly compared to something, perhaps it's more the difference between the head and the neck isn't quite as distinct, but possibly. And I think the hood, you know, the the hood and things like that, it, it, it downplays it. But I would say the heads are they're pretty they're pretty sizable in the big adult males. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And of course, they've got that really cool scalation, which makes the head looks awesome as well. Hmm. Which I forget the name of those two additional scales. Um, I don't know. Yep, I've completely forgotten. Someone will tell us. But two of Someone them will are the, right at the back of the head, on the top. So, uh, this paper, it takes place exactly where we met, in Sakurat Biosphere Reserve in northeastern mm. Thailand. Um, 
So, yeah, when me and Ben met and became friends, we were actually working at this um, research station uh, on behalf of the Sakurat Snake. What is it? Sakurat SC Conservation Sakurat Snake, Conservation Education, Snake Team. Education Team. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. SC set conservation um, first mate, snake second. I said that I said that enough times I should be able to remember it when we were doing like promotional <laughs> videos um, yeah so do you want to talk a little bit about Sakura it's a pretty awesome place set the scene yeah so what are we we are a biosphere reserve um, what does that really mean basically it's not quite a traditional protected area in that sense that it's it is staggered in the levels of protection so a biosphere reserve their full title of UNESCO Man and Biosphere Reserve, I believe. So there are elements of creating a landscape which basically deal with the needs of people as well as the needs of wildlife. So it's split up into three zones or areas. Centrally is the core area, which actually is afforded proper protection and ranger patrols. That's your zero tolerance in terms of uh, poaching and things along those lines. Uh, you then have a buffer area around that, which for Scarat is mostly mostly uh, reforestation efforts, trying to expand uh, suitable habitat for uh, forest-dwelling species. And a huge area surrounding that is agricultural, disturbed forest, plantations, villages. You've got a dirty, great highway going through the middle of it. Really, it's a agricultural landscape but with some level of limitation uh, when it comes to development supposedly maybe yeah it's a really forward-thinking <laughs> idea it, um, it is if it's done if, if it's done right yeah the idea of actually trying to make a tiered landscape of uh, human impact very very wise because you're not going to stop it outright so just sort of directing where it is has a lot of potential. Yeah. 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 And I think, yeah, excluding people from anywhere is never going to entirely work. So trying to encourage, you know, sustainable use of things like, yeah. you know, fungi and fruit and all that kind of stuff. Like, I think, yeah, it's it's a really good idea. I think you obviously need a lot of space for things like this to work because, you know, people exert quite a heavy pressure on environments, don't they? But um, They do. And you don't want to, <sighs> making it sound like it was all a very nice way of being said up, but they're, they're Scarrett has, when it was started, it did displace people out of the uh, buffer zone. I can't remember oh, the numbers and stuff. Oh, yeah. It's original. Like, it's not, you know, can't whitewash uh, Scarrett as a as a reserve. It did it did push some villages beyond, uh, out into tran transitional things, and that would have been back in the early 70s, I believe. Yeah, right. I didn't set know up, that. Yeah, set up to originally protect the dry dip terracotta. Um, which is a nice type of forest around here, which yeah. gets burnt every year. Which the dry dip terracarp something is to see. really cool. Yeah, um, it's like the dip terracarp trees. There's like these little spindly trees, um, and they're sort of reasonably well spaced apart. And then between them is this like really nice. What kind of grass is it? I don't even know. It's just like oh, uh, we always refer to it as bamboo grass. Yeah, so it's whether sort of that's like, a scientifically relevant name, I don't know. <laughs> but it creates an incredible environment where you've just got all this waist high grass with like a smattering of trees all around. It's so lush and green in the in the rainy season or just after. Um, and then, like you say, it burns, which is also really exciting. It's like controlled burned by local people, and um, yeah, that's exciting too because there's like massive forest fires everywhere you go. 
It's a but, sight um, to behold. It is, yeah. Yeah, it is. And, uh, well, yeah, and animals seem to respond, you know, they seem to be well-equipped to cope. They're obviously well-accustomed if they live in this dried-up terracarp. I remember um, walking around where it had literally just been burnt five minutes before. We were all out at night watching it burn, and then we walked around behind the fire just to see if there was any animals around and just saw this um, little coyote's lizard emerge out of a hole like nothing had happened. And then similarly... Kurt and I, when I was tracking green pit vipers, saw a pit viper just... Well, we were, we were tracking it with radio telemetry. And um, as the fire was approaching, it just was inside this log. And then, I mean, quite a big, thick log, to be fair, and a little bit above the ground. It was like a fallen log that was about three or four feet off the ground. And this inferno just raged past. But because it's grass burning, it does burn quite quickly. So it was all the grass mm. and leaves on the ground that's burning. And that, like, washed underneath the branch... Um, I can't remember the the snake because the transmitter beep will tell you how hot the snake is and the snake was getting fairly warm you know like I can't think now it's, it's in the paper um, but yeah anyway the fire burned through we were a bit worried but then the next day sure enough the snake was out it's usual ambushing position like nothing had happened so it does seem that the animals are accustomed to these burns and they do have you know behaviors which allow them to survive unharmed mm. when there's a big burn going through which is really cool yeah i don't know how sort of wide widespread those behaviors are but you know a few nice little stories indicating well eh, you know there's still life out there they're they're surviving they're doing yeah, all right. i mean there's there's lots of holes and things like that around isn't there because of the tortoises and stuff so they make holes the tortoises are they building those holes that are everywhere i have no idea about the tortoises building holes. I wouldn't imagine so, but it's possible. I don't mm. know. No, I don't think they do. Maybe not. Oh, well, that's just a bit of conjecture there. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway, back to King Cobras. Um, so the point of this one was spatial ecology. So you were doing radio telemetry, weren't you, on the King... Well, this most of this data was collected before we arrived there, was it not? Uh, what are we, when would I have gotten there? Yes, all of this is prior to both of us being at Scarrett. So this is 2012 through 14 data. It's basically, um, this paper is essentially a rough and ready version of work we're sort of currently doing, um, an analysis we're currently running. Basically, this data wasn't taken, it, it was taken with different tracking protocols it was taken a bit more inconsistently it was more rough and ready in the sense that you know Colin and team coming in setting up a new project you don't really know what's going on in terms of landscape the animals things like that uh, all experience prior for tracking king cobras had come out of a site in India in the western Ghats and it's very clear that the behavior of the king cobras there is dramatically different from um, how our king cobras behave here. So they had a protocol that was essentially checking the kings every hour, and here with this landscape and manpower and the king's uh, predispositions or, or personalities, that wasn't really feasible or perhaps even desirable. So they dropped it down to tracking the kings four times a day. So this is all a mix of older data that was being worked out exactly the best way to do it. That's why the method's a bit rough and ready as well. Um, 
but the idea was to produce something that gives them baseline data when it comes to king cobra spatial ecology. Where are they going? How much area are they using? What sort of habitats are they roughly using? Not really doing anything too sophisticated with it because we didn't feel the data quality really warranted it. Yeah, that's cool. Yeah, I remember reading the... Um, I was reading one of the papers uh, the other day there about the um, team over in India. And mm. yeah, it seemed as though for a lot of the time they were actually literally just following the king cobras. At least perhaps it was the first one they tracked because I'm thinking of the paper which was in um, ICRF. The... Um, what is it? Uh, was it the Bath paper? No, uh, the Bizaire. Okay, The Bizaire yes. one in 2010. Observations of, on a wild king cobra. Yeah, I mean, that is mm. a fascinating paper to read because essentially they'd just followed this king cobra through the through the forest. I mean, it spent most of its time in the forest. It did go into some agricultural areas. But yeah, they just followed this um, king through the forest and they'd seen it eat like, you know, upwards of 40 pit vipers, um, like Malabar... Malabar pit vipers and hump-nosed pit vipers. And this yeah. big adult king cobra, adult male, was just cruising through the jungle, finding pit vipers by scent. And then the pit vipers, once the king cobra got close enough, they'd freak out, drop out of their tree and start trying to make a dash for it. Inevitably, the <laughs> king cobra would catch them. Um, but it just sounds like an incredible... I mean, what amazing thing to be doing, just watching... I mean, to me, it would be quite a painful thing to do because I like pit vipers a lot. <laughs> um, and just watching a king cobra rumble, tens of them, would be quite sad, but also obviously incredibly fascinating. Um, but yeah, and it, it sounds as though quickly early on, um, the tracking team in Thailand realised that just following the cobras wasn't the best way to go about it for their particular... Study yeah. subjects, and you alluded to that, Ben. Like, why is that? Were they just a bit more nervous, or was it just a case that? Well, they were in... I, I think I think number one, yeah, our king, our king seemed to be a bit more nervous. But you also have a problem of if you're following an animal that closely, what are you actually impacting? Are you impacting its prey items? Are you impacting it? Are you constantly stressing it out? What you, you know? How are you modifying its behaviour? Things along those lines. Um, you're obviously always going to be modifying behavior in some way because you're present in, in the forest within I don't know, we had a, a minimum minimum distance of 10 meters for uh, for the majority of the time yeah. but you know they're still going to know you're there pretty much but splitting it between just checking them on four times a day at least reduces that somewhat um the other sort of worry is actually that the uh, for the adult males the prey is different because those okay you might not be disturbing pit vipers as much because a pit viper's reaction to a person being around isn't going to be to uh, flee and run away but we've got adult males that relatively routinely eat um, or at least seem to routinely eat monitor lizards monitor lizards a little bit more skittish than vipers. Uh, they tend to err on the side of fleeing rather than uh, crypsis. So that's a worry, is that you're driving away prey items for these individuals. Yep, nice. I can definitely attest to yep. the uh, skittishness of monitor lizards. I remember, because uh, when I was at the station, I used to go running a lot, and um, I would be running through the, the dip terracarp forest, the nice grass that we've just been describing, and I probably saw two monitor lizards in the time I was in Thailand mm. um, for six months. But... The amount of them I heard spooked by my presence, phew, hundreds. 
I mean, oh, they make you... a really characteristic sound as they run away. You hear their little tail and their legs scrabbling. Um, and the next thing you know, so, they're yeah. halfway up a tree about 50 metres away from you. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, to be honest, yeah, I never even saw anything go up a tree. I think when they're in the grass, they seem to be content to just chip off and leave. Yeah. Um, but yeah, it's certainly like if you were tracking an animal that's trying to hunt those and you're anywhere near, you were going to be doing them a disservice. I mean, should... I know that Max is working on stuff to get all those details of monitor predations out there. Because obviously they're not the only thing our guys are... Our kings are eating, so he's doing a big summary of uh, all the observations that we've made over the uh, over the years here, which will be fun. Mm, yeah, the monitor lizard thing started off as a bit of a sort of um, murder mystery, didn't it? Because a monitor lizard turned up on the side of the road, did it not? And it was sort of incapacitated and it was a bit of a mystery. And then... Um, yeah, as it transpired, it was most likely bitten by a king cobra, and that's why it was paralysed. Yeah, they uh, they do have to let them let them succumb to the venom. It seems. Well, we talked about that video of it happening on the podcast before, didn't we? Where there's a king cobra battling against a monster lizard, and it's really horrible to watch because <laughs> snakes are never that good at just grabbing their prey and swallowing it either. So it's like a really protracted battle where the king cobra <laughs> tries to find the head and get swallowing it. They don't have any arms, oh. so you've got to give them a break. But it the, just comes across as a little bit clumsy, doesn't it? Yeah, it does. Oh, exactly. It looks quite yeah, funny. It's, it's, not undig- it's not dignified. No, it's That's, not at all. Yeah. Um, yeah, they definitely sacrificed any dignity in order to be streamlined and travel in water, overground, <laughs> underground, and in trees with impunity. But, like, it's horrible because the monster is so keenly aware of what's happening, but it just can't move. And you just think, oh... It's a horrible way to go. And it's horrible, made more protracted way. by the fact the snake is incapable of swallowing it with any speed whatsoever. It's like, get it over with, please. <laughs> yeah, it's just an unpleasant video to watch. Um, yeah, especially when you think about that digestive juice, but we won't dwell on that. <laughs> anyway, anyway, enough about digestive juices and more about uh, what was actually found. Um, yes. Basically, these kings move a lot especially the adult males, they cover huge areas of hundreds of hectares, um, like 500 hectares plus, all the way up to what was the biggest estimate I had in this, 1,000 hectares, which is probably a bit of a overestimation. I say the methods here are pretty shaky and basic, but uh, it's giving you an idea, ranges are big. Is that 1,000 plus the male which was um, dispersing? Uh, no, I'm sort of I'm, I'm discounting uh, JM13 because he's got that weird period of unidirectional movement with uh, the estimation, home range estimation methods we've used. That's just grossly... Uh, it, 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 that is not part of his home range. I mean, that's not an area he ever reused in the subsequent year or so of tracking. So I don't think you can really say that that's part of his home range. So that, like, plus 1,000, 1,300 hectares, no. No, I don't think that's really what he's working with. I would, like, in the paper I'm saying there's, like, a post a post dispersal range of a couple of hundred hectares. I think that's more true to what he's actually using and certainly more in keeping with other juvenile males. Right. I found that bit really interesting. Um I mean, obviously, you have to know a bit about these snakes to notice something like that in the data. Um, but yeah, like, as you say, you've tracked weird. it for close to a year. And 
the bit at the beginning from if you look at the map of it the, there's a release point and then like you say the snake it's not a perfectly straight line but it's not really deviating I mean there's never going to be a perfectly straight line in nature but yeah the snake's definitely going one particular direction and then all of a sudden it seems to kind of you know if you were inside the mind of the King Kirby you'd be like oh it's found where it wants to live and now it's just going about its business in this yeah. you know like sensible you know logical core area it's um, it's the sort of behavior you might expect if the animal had been translocated or something like that. Big unidirectional movements and then just sort of gives up, either gets back to where it is used to or not. But this individual was released within, you know, within 100 meters of his uh, capture site. Mm. So it's definitely not that. What causes it? I don't know. It's very unusual. It's the only king that's ever been tracked that has done something like that. So it's a real, um, it's a real mystery. It's a kind of one where you hope that if um, other snakes of a similar size or age get caught, it will build up into a, like you know, a picture of this is king cobra dispersal. But obviously, there's a long way to go before you can say that. With any, yeah, you uh, need lo- a lot more juveniles tracked, and then yeah. Yeah. Same is true for virtually every snake species, though, right? Like snake <laughs> dispersal. Snake dispersal is a complete mystery. A nightmare. Really. Yeah, yeah. We, we we talked about anacondas a while back, and I think that's the closest. Uh, and the sample size there was what, like six, something like that. Like yeah. it was, it was a cool example of potential dispersal. Hmm. But um, I think you know there've been some other non-tracking examples. I think using genetics, uh, but on only a very limited number of species. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, I love it. I think it's really interesting. Mm. How is it? You know what ticks off in a in a juvenile snake's brain like it's time to leave my juvenile homeland and set out on a great and perilous journey to find <laughs> my adult home range and also finding that home range and being like yeah this this new <laughs> yeah. land this is all right i will call this my land yeah you know what it will be it will be when they find one of those enhydrous plumbia those big fat sausage snakes <laughs> if i was a king cobra and i found one of those i'd be like this is me yeah. Ah, a perfect breeding population of homolapsis. Yeah, these, just these delicious water snakes. <laughs> they're slow, they're fat, they seem to have, have quite simple expressions. <laughs> yeah, they do have simple expressions. They'd be difficult to empathise with as you watch them <laughs> paralysed as you tried to swallow them. I think oh, that would be a big thing for me as a king cobra. You'd, yeah, you'd need something that didn't look like a king cobra. Yeah, they look so dumb. <laughs> I love them. I think they're great. But it's like so many snakes that live in water have evolved to have their eyes on top of their head. And it's like, you just look ridiculous. I can't take you seriously with that expression. do look a little bit dopey. Yeah. Poor little guys. Some really pretty snakes, though. Like, uh, what is it? Is it, was it Homolopsis bucata, the puff-faced water snake? Is that right? Yeah. yeah. Yeah, I think so. That one, when they're babies, they're amazing, aren't they? They've got all the orange and the olive green mm. and the white on the sides. And um, they become a bit drab. They do, yeah. They grow into just horrible eyes on the top, gross, Mud smelly monsters. monsters. Yeah, they also stink as well. So they haven't got a lot going for them. But um, but that's what they want me to think because I'm a predator to them. So, you know, in a way that in itself is a success, which should be yeah. commended. Yeah. But either way, no, definitely. Uh, it's funny when you start to think about the breadth of snakes, which King Cobras could be eating when they're out and about in the fields in Thailand. Um, Incredible choice. Yeah, there really is. Huge numbers of species around here. All the rat snakes, like the Tyus. I mean, yeah. it seemed from the um, 
papers the Indian team published that the um, king cobras they were following had a higher proportion of um, like Indian rat snakes in their diet, uh, mm. which yeah. I mean, it could equally be true for king cobras in, in Thailand, I suppose. If, but if they're eating monsters when they're big, big, big. Um, well, this is also the problem. It's like, yes, we have evidence of that sort of stuff. But in terms of actually quantifying um, like how much relative, how much they're eating of different species is very tricky. Because we're not observing every predation event. Because uh, we're not wanting to disturb them. So that's it's difficult information to get. Mm. And I don't know. It, it almost requires a study specifically looking at that, and I don't even really know how you'd go about doing it. Cause you need to get the poo. You would, but you'd also need to get the sample size. Yeah. And yeah. I'm going back to the self-regulating thing. I think that's another line of evidence to suggest that they're that uh, sort of role in this ecosystem is we're pretty positive they exist, exist at pretty low densities here. Um, captures and recaptures are just an absolute nightmare. Absolute mm. nightmare. So, Yeah, that's the thing. Once you, you know, the higher up the food chain you get, the harder they are going to be to find because there's going to be less. Yeah. But yeah, I mean, it stands to reason. I mean, you know, when I was there, I was looking for snakes all the time. And obviously, I'm not as good at it as a king cobra. I'm not as tenacious. My sense of smell using my tongue is inferior. But Yeah, I mean, that didn't stop you from licking a lot of trees. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you how many snakes sure. did I catch? So, who's the fool? <laughs> hey, it was a non-zero amount. I'm not going to do the <laughs> licking of trees. Um, but, yeah, no. Because, I mean, they described that in the uh, Basair paper, which I just uh, mentioned. They described the king cobra's hunting strategy. And it's like... They're going around, it's going around on the floor, it's climbing the trees, it's smelling everything with its tongue, if you can call it smelling. Uh, but it's, you know, it's poking its head into all the little nooks and crannies, just exploring everything, you know, for probably eight hours a day. Um, and I wasn't as tenacious as that. But even so, there can't be that many snakes. If you're eating snakes, snakes are already meso-predators at the very least, right? Um, yeah, yeah. So... You know, once you're a predator that solely focuses on eating predators, your carrying capacity seemingly is going to be default quite low. You'd expect so. You really would expect so. Because, I mean, snakes are definitely third... Yeah, third, you know, third trophic level up from, from plants. If you really want yeah. to do it in levels, which is a bit shaky anyway. But... Uh, well, there certainly any, aren't any snakes that eat algae. No. So they're going to be at least above consumers yeah yeah um so these king cobras had the big big home ranges like the they second did. largest of any snake yeah or well third. this is this is actually something that i'm Wait. can i say largest <laughs> yeah oh you, you can say largest but can you say it with any confidence can Me. you say that the home range estimates that we've produced here are actually comparable to the home range estimates done by other studies uh Sort of, maybe-ish. Is an MCP a particularly good measure of home range? No, probably not. A kernels? No, probably not. Is it the best we have for a lot of species right now? Yes. Can you compare them? Um, probably you're on thin ice. So when you say MCP, you're meaning minimum convex polygon? Yeah, basically draw a box around the points that the snake was recorded at 
that's the area. A kernel is a is a prob- basically a probability uh, probability distribution. Is that strictly true? Essentially, um, basically, you have your points, and then you say, okay, x area around it. The further you get from the points, the lower the probability of the snake being there. You stick all your points together, you get a big blob, and you sort of mash all the numbers together, and you get a overall. Uh, distribution of where the animal could have been when you weren't actually tracking it. So basically it's trying to infill the spaces between uh, when you did know where it was because you tracked it. It's not a very good method. It's very rough. There's better methods out there that we won't bother going into yet because that'll be an episode in about 8 to 10 months time probably. (laughs) But the point is everybody sort of used the MCP and kernel methods with the idea that they can be compared and you know I obviously compare them because it's what we've got um, but the other downside is depending on how frequently you track them that'll modify home range size and how long you track them that'll also modify it you'd hope that you track them long enough that it's stabilized there are arguments that home ranges never really stabilize I best guess that depends on the nature of the organism it does well, yeah, it does. Because, um, I mean, it really depends whether or not they have a home range. I mean, because perhaps, you know, if you have an animal which changes where it lives every year. Yeah. Well, even do? it doesn't even have to change that much to start undermining your ability to say that it's stabilized. Because you can yeah. only track these animals for so long. And as we'll go in in the next paper, tracking them for a decent amount of time is actually incredibly difficult. <laughs> so you've got a lot of things playing against you and this isn't Mm. just with kings this is other snakes too it it becomes tricky yeah I think the king cobras though are probably one of the more difficult ones because of the the nature of their behaviour and range I mean I think in terms of activity yes but I think a lot of fossorial snakes are actually much harder uh, because you can't track them and you can't put uh, transmitters (laughs) in that's really aquatic snakes Aquatic will be pretty tricky too. <laughs> Anything that's very long and slim, so it's moving great distances, but it's very slim, so you can only put tiny transmitters in, going to be a nightmare. Anything that's moving through dense, a dense medium like soil or water, also going to be a nightmare. Yeah. So, yeah. <laughs> but I think um, all, those, all those caveats aside, all those caveats aside, I think you can be relatively confident that king cobras have one of the largest home ranges recorded for snakes. I think that they're going to be comparable, like I say in the paper, to indigo snakes, specifically dry mark on cuprae that have had some good studies done in the in uh, Florida and places like that. I think they are from. Yes. What was sorry? Dry mark on cuprae, Florida. Yeah, they're from. Yeah, Florida. Yeah. yeah. Um, the other trick is. The other guys that seem to have a range that's bigger are Burmese pythons. But but it's an introduced range. Exactly. They're all uh, introduced because we don't really have a good record of native Burmese python ranges. So goodness knows what they do actually over here. In Florida, they seem to... Oh, holy smokes. They're doing ranges that are like twice what uh, our kings were doing here. Easy. Easy twice, if not four times. Again, a little bit rough and ready because the methods aren't directly comparable and the way they've tracked them are 
you know, obviously not different. But we also have a little bit of additional evidence from the Western Ghats where you have bigger ranges than what we've recorded here. Anyway, and everything's really pointed towards King Cobra is moving a lot and moving great distances. <sighs> yeah, I, I think mm. they're up there. I'm confident yeah. in saying they're up there, certainly. Yeah. Plus, I mean, yeah, like their their behavior is different. Like a Burmese python is predominantly an ambush predator, right? Whereas Are the King they? Cobra's active forager. I think so. I think they probably move around to find a good spot to ambush, but I feel like... I wonder how frequently they move to good ambush spots, though. Hmm. And I wonder if it's more similar to... What was the term used for the chameleon? Cruise foraging? Cruise foraging, Where they yeah. do lots of small ambushes? Well, that's kind of like where they just walk a few steps. And, and then they stop for a bit and look around. Yeah, I'm, I'm just saying with the with the... The Burmese pythons, I'm not super confident in calling it one way or another just yet. Mm, okay. Well, I don't like on... using the Florida population as a as an example because goodness, goodness knows. I mean, there was we were talking the other day about them being, you know, interbred with uh, whatever it was, Indian pythons. Indian pythons, yeah. Yeah. Malurus and Bivitatis have crossbred in the Everglades. Yeah. I'm, well, I'm hesitant. I'm, I mean, I'm not going to say it's not the case. But I'm just hesitant with pythons. I'm going to go out on a limb and say it is the case. Yeah, proper and ambush then, predator. And then we can we can go back to this episode and make a fool of me when the inevitable paper comes out. About... <laughs> We're actually hyperactive. So... <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we'll see how it goes. Oh yeah, I'm just they're so fat and big. I can't imagine they're moving around that much. But who knows? No, I can't either. But I just can't count it out. I just can't count out the. The pure ambush because they've got they've got a lot of muscle. They can move around. They can move arboreally. They can pretty much do what they want. Really, they're big enough to be ignored by most things. I feel certainly again here where you've lost a few of the, the really big terrestrial predators. Mm. One of the things that makes me doesn't not think they move very much is the fact that they seem to be pretty co- comfortable uh, living around humans. And I feel like if they were. If they yeah. were moving around that much, they'd get seen and killed way more than they, they must do to get also, to survive. I mean, we've got anecdotal evidence of them going into hen coops and stuff and taking livestock that way. Hmm. And that is actively following a, a trail to a hen, you would presume. Yeah, but I think that could be, you know, because what are they doing? If they're looking for an ambush position, right? They're looking for a, a rodent trail. A scent trail and then it ends up... Yeah, if the scent uh, trail... Yeah is a caged hen it's where the hen is so yeah I don't know I don't know if that's fair to use as but then we don't know how, how far they're moving to get to ambush sites which is essentially the argument we're having is, is yeah well that's we, it we yeah. don't if, know. They're moving, <laughs> if they're moving five miles every night to find a new ambush spot then we're kind of both right <laughs> yeah well that's why I wanted the like halfway house of uh, chameleon okay. cruise foraging yeah like not viper stuff but not the extreme opposite yeah yeah all right, well, anyway, we digress. We're supposed to be talking about king cobras. Yeah. Um, so I think, well, you'll know, you'll be able to tell me. Main findings, king cobras have massive ranges by snake standards. Um, yeah. One thing we haven't talked a massive amount about, we, you, I mean, we kind of alluded to it, but the as snakes, they individually have different habitat preferences. So it's not like you're finding them all in the same kind of environment. The individuals yeah. are, some are in the deep forest, some are spending much more time in agricultural areas. Um, you know, some others still like scrubland, which is sort of 
unkempt agricultural areas. Mm. Um, so, I mean, that kind of demonstrates that as a species, they've got that sort of behavioural plasticity to do a few different things. Although they might be doing broadly similar things in those different habitats. You know, they're in different habitats, which is quite a big deal, really, because... I think so, you don't, yeah. You don't, that's certainly not... I wouldn't say that was characteristic of many species. I mean, that's a very generalist trait. And the fact that even as individuals, they're crossing over into multiple habitat types. I mean, that's just something else that's really cool about king cobras. I think so. And it, and it plays back into sort of how special they are, or at least how special I think they are. They're, they're fitting in with, what, like buzzards? Things like it's still decent-sized birds of prey, decent-sized uh, terrestrial predators, which are using disturbed human habitats. Because you don't get bears around here, you don't get dolls around here. Uh, tigers aren't going to be wandering through agriculture in, in this part of Thailand. So, to me, it feels like you've got your king cobras and you've got your decent-sized birds of prey. And I'm not really sure what else is left in terms of terrestrial predators making use of agriculture. So, interestingly, one of, excuse me, one of the things that you said about in the paper is um, they like using canals. Mm. Uh, in agricultural land um, possibly because a canal is nice and damp um, it's also a little bit safer because it's less exposed if you're you know swimming yep. on the edge of a canal then people aren't necessarily going to see you other predators aren't going to see you whereas if you're crossing a dry field you know it's going to be super obvious yeah. also green pit vipers I mean I can attest to this we used to me and Kerr used to always look for water on Google Maps it was the first thing we'd do um, because you know, a couple of the species of pit viper out there are really, really closely associated with water, being as they largely eat frogs and lizards and stuff. Um, but that makes me wonder, I wonder if um, when Siamese crocodiles were around and about, if there was showdowns between king cobras and those. Do you ever hear about that in other parts of their range? Oh, I've never heard of anything along those lines. I think the the, the biggest showdown... I've heard of kings versus something is kings versus big reticulated pythons. Oh yeah, I've seen some of those f- sets of photographs. Yeah, it's crazy. I I have no idea about crocs. Yeah. I yeah, yeah I really don't know. I don't think kings are particularly associated with water as much when they're outside of the agricultural areas. Yeah. Um. Certainly, I'd say more sophisticated analysis occurring currently is suggesting that that's certainly weaker in forested areas and once once you go into the ag it's even sort of suggested in this paper once you go into the agriculture selection tends to jump up um, even within individuals we have um, uh, adult male six who spent a lot of time in forest but when he went into the agriculture that suddenly his habitat preference became well, much strong, much stronger, and was choosing these areas, like you say, near canals, that sort of scrubby bits of uh, fragmented vegetation when he was outside of the forest. Mm. So, hey, so yeah. um, you know that Newt paper we were reading, whichever week it was, where they were looking at the um, how like sinusoid the movements were. How sinusoid? You know, like whether or not the movements were winding or straight. Oh right, yes. Do you do you think there? Have you ever noticed the difference between um, kings in forest and kings in agricultural areas? As goes the kind of windiness of their Ooh. roots. Um, I mean, I can I can think of examples of tracking kings in the forests and tracking kings in ag, 
where they have followed uh, canals or stream beds pretty exactly and in very nice straight lines. Mm. And I can think of examples in both where they've been seemingly zipping around in weird wiggly circles. But right. that might not be to do with movement as such. That might be, okay, those are actively foraging at that time and those guys are looking for somewhere new to forage or mm. moving for a shelter site having just eaten a meal. So it's a little bit tricky to say. Um, and I don't think it's something that we could pull out of the data. That sounds like a GPS data sort of question. Mm. You, could okay. you could definitely do that from GPS data because you could get good frequent updates of ter turn angle but uh, with the radio tracking too number infrequent. one yeah too infrequent and also not precise enough yeah that's fair um yes. certainly certainly when they're moving because that is a bit of a nightmare if a, if a king's booking it through the forest it's it's not the easiest thing in the world to keep up with <laughs> cool well there you go i think that's um king cobra spatial ecology there all over the, the place for the time being, I would say, watch this space. There's better. There's better stuff on the way. <laughs> this is this is basic, but it got the point across. More biologically focused. We got some more conservation focused stuff coming soon. Well, there's five years have passed since this data was finished being collected, so that's exciting. Mm, yeah. Uh, cool. So, do you want to introduce the next paper? Uh, I feel weird introducing my own paper. I'll introduce it then. Uh, <laughs> Thank you. Okay, hits close to home, repeated persecution of king cobras, Ophiophagus hana, in northeastern Thailand, by Marshall, Strine, Jones, Theodoru, Amber, Wengsathorn, Suamwari, and Good, published in 2018 in Tropical Conservation Science. Good old Tropical Conservation Science. I do like them. Open access. Got to enjoy open. some good open nice. access. Nice format as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I like the format too. It's good and clear. Yeah. It's jolly. It's nice. Um, cool. So what's this one about? Uh, this is uh, partly explaining why it's so difficult to track a decent number of king cobras simultaneously or for an extended period of time. As the uh, title suggests, they tend to get killed. Hmm. And not only do they get killed, there is a tendency for the causes of death to be connected to humans in some shape or form. Yeah. Yeah. So they are victims of human-wildlife conflict oh, with yeah. qu quite shocking regularity. So how many snakes were tracked in, in this? Uh, 23? 23. And what was it, 14 met their untimely demise? Via... Yes, I think it's 12 of the tracked ones and two were observed opportunistically. The, and right. the two opportunistic observations were roadkill on the main highway. One right. was a juvenile of unknown sex, I think, and the other was a neonate, if I remember correctly. And I think since then we've actually seen another neonate killed at almost exactly the same location multiple years afterwards. Oh, really? Or one year was afterwards. That, was that on the highway? Yeah, yeah. So we, yeah, that's rough. 
And and the way it's sort of repeated in the same location, we're pretty sure that there's an adult female nesting somewhere off the highway there. But we've yet to find her. <laughs> we certainly haven't found any nest site over there yet. Mm. But, That's uh, rough. It um, is. This whole paper, not, uh, not the happiest paper, not the most pleasant to have written either. No, it's pretty bleak. So, yeah, um, yeah I mean, how were they dying? Let's we go over it briefly. One was eaten by a hog badger. Yeah, so I was interested in that. Um, <laughs> it says, in the paper it says, um, teeth marks characteristic of a hog badger. Like, what yeah. does that mean? How can you tell us specifically it was a hog badger? Because I had a uh, similar... I'll tell you my story after you tell me yours. Well, basically, I think it was... This was, this was way before I was here. This is like 2014. This is... Which individual was two or four, wasn't it? Um, four, I think. Uh, this is early, early data, only second tracked uh, King Cobra. And I'm pretty sure the transmitter was just taken to someone who knows uh, the mammals of the area. It was like, what's your best guess for what consumed this? And they said hog badger. All right. Okay. So it was just a case of identifying the tooth marks. I believe so. Yeah. Huh. Yeah, I think it was teeth marks on the uh, on the transmitter, and that's they were, as I say, characteristic of hog badger. Now, it's like I always say, how confident I can be in that? Well, not really at all, because it's not my. I don't know, but uh, <laughs> yeah, no, I mean, I'm not expect. I would, I would literally have no idea. I'd be like, oh look, bites. Something's <laughs> been nibbling on this. <laughs> Definitely been some sort of attack. Yeah. Right. And uh, do you know what percentage of the corpses have been eaten? Percentage of the corpse? What do you mean? Like... Of its corpse. As in, how much of the King Cobras were left when they were found predated? Or was it just oh, a transmitter? Uh, I think four was only the transmitter, but two was found and it was all sort of like slashed up. Wow. I don't know, I, I don't know how much of it was left. Right. It's also tough because... Well, I suppose at this time they were you know, pushing to actually see the King Cobras most of the time. But uh, certainly later on, with a less intensive, uh, less disturbing... Less disturbing tracking regime? I guess that's the right way of putting it. But basically staying further away from the Kings, uh, actually knowing when they died is a little bit tricky because they can, yeah. you know, go into a hole and die and then you you wouldn't know. It's because these guys, these guys sit still for long periods of time. Mm. Big movements, yeah, but there's also big sleeps or big right. rests, <laughs> <laughs> um, big digests. Yeah, well, I just yeah, because I had a bit of a mystery with one of the Escalapian snakes. Um, Dev and I, I might have, I don't know if I've told this story in here before, but Dev and I were walking along. Um, as Was this the one our, with the with the dodgy back? The dodgy back. Ah, oh, no, no, no. Okay, no. different one. That one, that one was really sad. No, this one. Basically, we were walking along. And, um, yeah, we were, like, rounding a corner in, like, sort of... It's, it's a bit of woodland inside the grounds of the zoo. And yeah. um, literally on the path in front of us, there was what looked like about two-thirds of a snake. But it was inside out. So um, it was basically just what? a snake's skin. It was a snake's skin with nothing else turned inside out with, like, the front third removed, right? So something um, had eaten it like a fruit. Basically, yeah, like or, or or a go-go for American audience. Yeah, but more like 
I don't even know. It was completely inverted. So it was like you'd taken a frube and like poked from the bottom till the inside came out and then licked all the yogurt off it. That's what happened. Isn't, isn't that how you eat frubes? No, you like squeeze them, no? Oh, right. Yeah, 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 sure. You're okay. turning frubes inside out, mate. It's disgusting. <laughs> it's actually pretty gross. Well, that's, <laughs> I, I get them and I just slice them down the middle with a scalpel. And I... <laughs> okay. And then eat with a spoon. I mean, okay. I, I figured that was normal, right? Uh, yeah. No, why not? Um, <laughs> <laughs> you can have a word with your mum and dad. Um, yeah, so it was really weird. It was a bit of a mystery. And um, I mean, I didn't really know what that could possibly have been. Like what kind of a sick monster turns a snake inside out, eats all of its meat and then leaves. Probably um, a badger. Yeah, it was a badger, I think, as it turns out. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think so. Because I mentioned it in a talk I was giving because it had just recently happened. And I was like, yeah, we've got this little mystery. And um, yeah, someone in the audience was like, it's an undergraduate student called Tom. And he was like, mm. that's a badger. <laughs> and I was like, oh, cheers. And then I actually looked up... Um, Oh God! Do you remember the uh, Do you remember the Pit Viper radio telemetry paper? What's her name? Um, she Give did like clues. the translocation of fifty Devon and, and Devon Sang song. Yes. So in her uh, conservation biology paper, she talks about um, different predations that happened, and one of them was I, I I looked at it and it said like one snake showed signs of having been eaten by a medium-sized mammalian carnivore and then she described it as having been turned inside out and I was like oh okay mm. yeah it's a case closed getting all the good innards of leaving the chewy skin and bones yeah but it's just mad like just to think you know to think of a badger having the dexterity to do that to a relatively small snake it's quite amazing and yeah, um, yeah it was quite shocking and grisly for us but yeah I mean we just picked it up went on our way <laughs> <laughs> took some pictures put it in the took fridge pictures took some pictures little genetic sample snip snip yeah. <laughs> crime scene photographs job done <laughs> yeah we actually have some horrible crime scene photographs it was just really weird <laughs> I just wasn't expecting to see an inside out snake um, I I mean are there any times you are expecting to see an inside out snake well yeah I'm pretty damaged and traumatised so now it's for all the time <laughs> it can be anywhere <laughs> yeah as soon as no. you close your eyes, you see an inside side, inside out yeah, snake. Yeah, pretty much. Only at night to sleep, a chance to dream of inside out snakes. <laughs> oh. Yeah, horrible. But anyway, yeah, Not dark. But like, I mean, you're you're probably the same way. You um, you see these things, and it's like, oh, it's sad because it's your study species. But then obviously, it's contributing to the data, um, which is important. Yeah, because, there's a weird, um, there's a weird duality to it. Is if it wasn't happening, it wouldn't be worth reporting, and all the effort wouldn't be worth it but the fact that it is happening is unbelievably disheartening and heartbreaking a lot of the time especially when it's individuals that you have tracked for literally years and then they turn up dead that is that's not something you get used to very quickly or at all especially when the death's so unceremonious like being beheaded and put in a bag and just like dumped on the side of the road it's like it's not nice to see is it yeah that's uh that's tough yeah. That is tough. So there was only two natural predator deaths um, yeah. out out of 14. And there was 14 anthropogenic sources of mortality, as you call them. So basically, humans gone did it. Um, a couple of road mortalities. 12, 12 anthropogenic mortalities. 14, 14 deaths, two natural, 12 anthropogenic. 
Right, gotcha, gotcha, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> this is the other problem with this paper. I've done it... How many times have I sort of gone over all these numbers that they get so messed up in your head that you go, oh, dear. <laughs> I just don't read so good. Um, <laughs> it's not a confusing paper to read, mate. I wouldn't worry. <laughs> like, I really enjoyed it. Oh, it was a confusing paper to write. It's it, it's one of those ones where it's like morbidly fascinating, if you know what I mean. Um, what it is, it's an important issue. That's, you know, if it, if it wasn't an important issue, it wouldn't be worth the time of day. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it was something which... We talked about a lot while we were there, um, so it's nice to have it, you know, cohesively presented. And yeah. Because a lot of the stuff that goes on at Sakurat is like snake education, hence the name of the team. Yeah. So there is a lot of, um, you know, it outreach and stuff going on. Thoroughly um, justifies it. And the thing is, I think what's something, I mean, something which is obviously a commonly held belief is that king cobras are really dangerous. But if you look at the statistics for snake bite in Thailand, the number of king cobras, is it not like less than 2%, I think I remember reading? Oh, it's it's, it's negligible. It really yeah. is. And the, when you look at what the bites are, they do tend to be people actively handling the animal. Yeah. Um, accidental stuff from kings, is, is it appears to be non-existent. I mean, it's always hard to completely discount something like that because snake bite records are tricky to get a hold of and tricky to verify but when other species appear so prominently i.e green pit vipers among others hey, hey okay okay They're, those guys are all right well they they don't cause the deaths no but they cause like digit loss they are and a hospitalization. lot of a lot of bites yeah yeah they do yeah. cause people um like yeah, no, I'm. I would never trivialize snake bite. I think they do cause people like disfiguring injuries, and um, yeah. I mean, just going to a hospital and having to have treatment and stuff. If you're, you know, if healthcare's not provided for you, I mean that that can be a massive mm. impact on someone's life. So, yeah, unfortunately, green pit vipers being small, green, and arboreal, people run into them all the time. And I mean, you know, and disinclined to like get out of the way. Yeah, they are. Their 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 main defense mechanism is to completely stay stock still until they're touched. So yeah. you know, I've been on I've been on surveys, and this is why we used to wear thick boots, gaiters, and trousers because you can kick one. It won't. It's not even considered getting out of the way. It's not going to get out of the way. <laughs> you can put your hand on it. It's not going to move until you touch it. Yeah. Um, obviously, it seems as though based on the paper from India, the king cobra approaching would be an exception and then they would drop out of the tree and move. But for a human approaching, I've never once seen a green pit viper do anything other than stay still. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and hence, hence, hence when people are clearing their gardens or, you know, moving something. I and, mean, you know, we used to see the, the snakes we were tracking and really, um, you know, in people's gardens, chilling out by some tarpaulin, you're just like, wow, that's exactly the kind of place where someone's going to get bitten by a snake if, if they don't Someone's going to come across it and just accidentally bump into it. Exactly. Yeah. 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 Whereas it's, the king cobras, that's not necessarily true. They're smart enough. They're wily enough to get out of the way. I, I think so. And I think also the lower density of them helps. Um, that being said, people still don't like them and there is still a lot of fear surrounding them, which mm. it is a problem. It's definitely a problem because I'm sure that they are suffering because of it. Um, how to tackle that? Well, making the facts of snake bite known, I guess, helps. Um, it's a it's a tough one to solve. It really yeah. is. So that kind of leads us onto your questionnaire study. Um, yeah, you you know there was a bunch of questions asked. Um, whether or not people are afraid of snakes, what they think the most dangerous snake is, what they'll do when they come across a snake, and I think the answers are actually really interesting. Mm. Um, 
yeah, there was like, you know, when people were asked what the most dangerous snake was, they either said true cobras, so the Naja species, Naya species, I should say, or Naha, I don't know how to say it. Um, I always go with Naja, but, you know. Do you? Fair enough. Um, Just because it, it feels nicer to say. Naha, there's nothing to really get your, get your teeth I'm gonna into. Say, I'm going to say Naya. I like Naya. Oh, that's a, yeah, okay. Yeah. Um, <laughs> yeah, so 29 people thought that true cobras were the most dangerous, so Naya. And 27 thought king cobras. Three thought all snakes. Well, you got, well that's, that's not quite true because that's number of responses, not number of people. Uh, because people weren't limited to just oh, saying one snake. Okay. So some of the people gotcha. who said king cobra could have also said true cobra. Uh, okay, um, so and I know that is actually some of the case for some of them. A lot so of the time it was just one picked, but uh, yeah. Okay, so of the responses, the most common response was that Naya, if they, you know, they had multiple choice. Naya were most dangerous, then King no, Cobra no was multiple just choice, behind. Uh, oh, sorry. Multiple response, yes, not multiple choice. They weren't given a, it was just straight, what do you think the most dangerous snake is? There's no prompting at all. Uh, so it was just written response. Uh, oh, I see. So there was no boxes. Yeah. No boxes. No, no, no. It was literally mm. just write down most dangerous snake. Some people wrote down more than one. Some people wrote down one. Mm. But Just I, so everyone who's listening knows, my lack of understanding doesn't come from a lack of clarity in the paper. It comes from my own ignorance about reading and comprehending information. <laughs> um, so, so uh, <laughs> Green Pit Viper came up once. So, yep. yeah, gets a mention. Someone said rattlesnake, which goes to so... I think, if nothing else, how negatively snakes are portrayed in the world at large in, in media, because certainly um, no one in Thailand will have come across a rattlesnake in the wild, and yet they appear on this. Um, yeah, a Belcher sea snake. Someone said that's really specific. I know it's it's unusually specific. You really like uh, really <laughs> came across a snake expert there. Like, what even is a Belcher sea snake? Like, I have. Um, I don't even I think, know that I think one, they're yeah. from the. Uh, uh, west of the country, I think. Wow. I think they actually do have a really potent venom. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. I mean, um, it's a, um... And I think it was someone that knew that they were most dangerous in regarding venom uh, potency. That's like way to take the question incredibly literally. I think I... Yeah. Uh, where they actually exist... Indi Indian Ocean, Indian Ocean, yeah, and and also Gulf of Thailand, so they are about. Okay, yeah, and they are hydrophinae. Okay, so there's true sea snake. Hmm. So yeah, they'll mess you up. That person you they were talking about. <laughs> I love that. What's your? What do you think is the most dangerous snake? Yeah, Belcher's sea snake. Gotta be. <laughs> it's like yeah, okay. Spawn. Yeah. Spot on. Do you work hey. here? <laughs> yeah, that's, that's awesome. Um, yeah, cool. So uh, people's attitudes to snakes. Most people, most responses said, yes, I fear snakes. Mm. So yeah, the vast majority of people did fear snakes. Yeah. Although there is some heartening stuff. Like um, a lot of people understood that uh, snakes were environmentally important. Yes. Now we do... It is worth mentioning the sort of background to this survey and how surveys done in this particular manner are, well, problematic to say the least. Um, 
obviously people knew who we were, who were doing the survey. They knew our reason for being around. This was a good year after the project started. So they knew we were a snake conservation group and obviously don't want people attacking snakes and hurting snakes because we'd given out flyers and things, offered snake rescue, trained rescue teams, things like that. So there is a potential for people to be more inclined to say things that we're wanting to hear. That's something that's quite well documented in, in surveys and things like that. So And also the environmentally important thing, you don't know whether that's coming from, I don't know, I'm, I'm disinclined to fully trust that it's yes, they're important in an ecosystem way and not just that they're environmentally important in a resources sort of way because we also have oh, okay, the straight yeah. 50-50 of people eating snakes. Yeah. So being environmentally important could be resource important. Gotcha, um, yeah, yeah. So yes, there is, there's, there's a nice bit of hope there. Yeah, it's just got to be a little bit, little bit careful with how much you read into it. I reckon. Okay, yeah, that is a bit of a, um, yeah, that is a bit of a sort of open, open-ended question. It is a little bit, yeah, yeah, yeah. And otherwise, you know, the people's behaviour when they see a snake, most well, the most common response was that they would attack the snake, then scare it away. Lots of people would either run away or stand still or shout, which is good. And actually, if you add up, run away, stand still, and shout. Uh, mm. Which are the sensible reactions? Although, I mean, shouting is not going to do a lot, but at least it's you know. I just no. I, I love I love the the image of someone seeing a snake and just yelling at it to leave. The snake's like, "Did you feel oh. a vibration in the air?" <laughs> <laughs> I I think shout doubled up as like uh, shouting to get also get help. Right. Okay. But nevertheless, like those three together add up to be the biggest block, which is heartening. You know. Yes. Like, but again, um, you have this thing of they're talking to us. Yeah, of and course. And yeah. the added lack of wanting to self-incriminate yourself because king cobras are a protected species. So there might be that in the back of people's minds. Although, yeah, although you do be say frank, in the paper that it's unlikely they know that. It, yeah, it isn't widely. It doesn't seem to be widely known from, I mean, from what we've people, gathered. I think most people in the UK would not be aware that um, adders were afforded protection, I would imagine. I don't think it's something which is... In the collective consciousness. It's not talked about very much, no. Um, yeah, I would so be very surprised. If, if I mean, like, to be honest, even when that question comes up in snaky circles, there's often people who don't know, which is... Or don't know the precise details of it. It can be protected in name mm. without having any sort of, like, teeth to the, uh, yeah. teeth to the uh, regulation. Yeah, but um, yeah. So, do we want to talk about some of the other ways they died, or do you feel we covered? Oh, I mean, we can we can run through. You know, obviously persecuted, ran over, ran over again. The one that you discovered, uh, adult male twenty-one, oh, yeah. caught oh, yeah, in that okay. fish so, trap and stabbed in the tail. Yeah, so that was a really sad day. I um, I was in the I was in this like little riverbed. And um, it's like in the middle of human habitation, there's like loads of houses around. And we'd see the people who live in the houses, you know, give them a wave and stuff, have, you know, say hello. And then, um, yeah, one day I was there tracking a green pit viper and it was in exactly the spot I left it. So it took about two seconds. And then um, I was turning around <laughs> oh, to go home. Good boy. You, you stay there. <laughs> yeah. I was like, cheers, number 22. See you later, mate. And then uh, <laughs> I was going to go home and chill. And then, uh, yeah, this guy comes up to me and he's like, um, and I sort of in my 
virtually non-existent Thai explained to him what I was doing and was saying like Green Pit Viper in Thai but he was just kept on saying King Cobra and I was just like yeah it's not all about King Cobras mate like you know yeah cool whatever and then because uh, you know Google the assumption defensive. yeah because that's where the project started and you know people were assume often uh, assume that you're tracking a King Cobra uh, and they, you know, obviously curious to know about it. And so, um, but then he was like motioning for me to come with him. So I was like, okay, cool. Let's go check it out. And then, um, yeah, he took me to a fish trap and sure enough, there was a adult male King Cobra in there. Um, yeah. big, what was he? Three, Number yeah. 21, was it? 21. Yeah. Yeah. A really beautiful snake. Um, mm. like un- really unusual coloration. Very, and very so I was light. Like, I was like, Blonde, oh, fair. basically. Yeah, he's a blondie, um, yeah. like almost like a hypomelanistic kind of color. And um, so I was like, oh, wow, okay, thanks. And he looked okay in the fish trap. And so I called Bart, uh, who's a much more qualified snake catcher than me. And he came down and we got snake in a bag and, yeah, took it back to the station. And it ended up having a transmitter put inside it, right? It, it did. Well, at the time, well, and we still really believed that the damage was basically negligible it was it yeah. had a had a sort of stab wound in its in its tail but like yeah really minimal it seems seen snakes with way way worse it'd be absolutely fine yeah. i don't it, think that that being caught in that fish trap was uh when it sustained sort of mortal injuries we think it probably got got again afterwards um, uh, yeah because i mean to me because we did not pick up the actual like stabbing and, and sort of death that it sustained later on was not the stuff we'd seen uh, originally, I don't think. So you think it got hurt again? Yeah, yeah. I mean, the, yeah. the place that it was found and then released and then stayed around, a lot of human traffic. It was slap bang in the middle of a, a sort of very busy bit of the village in this in, again irrigation canal that's sort of running through it it could have left but it didn't uh, yeah I, I I think we're confident that there was something after the initial uh, trauma of the capture and stuff yeah right have you got a nice photo of that snake I do have a nice photo of that snake yeah we should put one up we should put one up on the Facebook group so people can see the colour that we're talking about um because he was really special. And uh, yeah, I mean, like I say, when I when we caught him, he seemed to be fine. Um, I mean, I wasn't there for the processing, but yeah, like the way he moved as he... I mean, he was very easy to capture, but I kind of just assumed he might have been in the... He was stuck inside a fish trap, right? So yeah, if anyone hasn't seen one of these fish traps, it's basically... Well, it's you a imagine, funnel like, trap. It's a lobster pot, basically, isn't it? Yeah. Um, with a funnel, and once something goes in... Uh, People put them in little creeks and fish go in and obviously can't get out or uh, crustaceans and things like that as well. And every now and again, a snake finds its way into one. So it's just pretty fortuitous that I happened to be there. Uh, yeah. Because, I mean, it would have been a real dilemma otherwise. I wouldn't know what the hell to do if I was that guy. Um, yeah. But unfortunately, the snake met some timely demise and then was added to this paper. So, yeah. yeah. But... I mean that's that's pretty much sums up. One of the, one of them was eaten. I suppose that's slightly different from persecution and roadkill and things like that. One was uh, one was eaten. Yeah, I think that's a completely different thing, isn't it? If someone's going to kill a snake, to I eat think it, so. It's like okay, fair. Like yeah, I mean it's it's obviously not it's not legal, but you can ally yourself way more with that than someone killing it just because. 
I mean, yeah, it just depends whether there's a bit of cross pollination between the two uh, two attitudes. Like, would you bother putting yourself at risk to kill something and eat it if you didn't have that additional like mm, don't like that animal as well? Like, I don't maybe know. not. I don't think that I don't think you can confidently confidently say they're isolated. But uh, no, that's a fair comment. Yeah. So um, I think the only weird, super weird one is. Uh, Big John, adult male five, who uh, died because he ate a plastic bag. Yeah, that was rough. Yeah. There was some suggestion the bag may have smelled of fish. Is that right? Yeah, fish maybe. Or we were talking the other day about, you know, we've, we've found our king cobras killed and put in bags twice now. Um, so there's every possibility that another snake had been killed and thrown in that bag. And he came cruising in and smelled a good meal. Who knows? Possible. It's possible. Who knows? Um, Either way, very, very weird, and I don't know of many other, if any other, documented cases of snakes being killed by plastic pollution in quite the same way. That was a really sad story, though, because that snake oh, was, was just tragic. Sort of like, he was a big deal. He was massive, wasn't he? And also, yeah. he was like one of the first ones that was like really, really successfully tracked in the project. Yeah. Um, so he was he loomed large in everyone's collective consciousness, and I remember like there was a lot of. Uh, People were wounded when they talked about John. Yeah, man. You know, these snakes are charismatic. They we are, don't just for say sure. that for, for a, oh, it helps get funding sort of thing. Like, oh, charismatic megafauna, but we don't have megafauna, so we'll replace it with King Cobra charisma cells. Uh, that's, that's very much after the fact, because they are, they fully have personalities and they are fully, um, what's the right word? Like, you know, they do, they they hold your attention with such such power. Well, I think they, a king are... cobra meets your gaze, <laughs> yeah. which is deeply unsettling. No, it's not yeah. unsettling. It's just impressive. You look at a king well, cobra. It, it's looking you don't at you. forget it. No. You do not forget it. You come across a king in the wild. Uh, that's a uh, yeah. <laughs> no chance. No chance. You're forgetting that encounter. No. So, uh, yeah, I think does that more or less wrap up the? They didn't. They didn't have a nice time. Basically, the king cobras in the wild. Lots of them were persecuted, um, and it seems yeah. to be if you track a snake for long enough, it's going to meet a demise in an untimely way, which is more than likely going to be owing to human intervention. Yep, and it dramatically diminishes your sample size when you're wanting to do more sophisticated analysis to work out how they're using their habitat, eating animals, prey energetics you know name your question it becomes impractical not only are they hard to find because of the low densities if they're also getting killed uh, prematurely it, it's a perfect storm of difficult mm. i i kind of want to think of a nice a nice upbeat thing to round it off uh you know we've saved a lot of snakes out here the rescue teams have saved a lot of snakes out here uh, it's definitely improving. Yeah, I think um, with the efforts of the research team locally, um, yeah, I think word spreads. And I think, like, it does. a the lot rescue, of it... The rescue guys are doing superb work out there. Yeah, and I mean, certainly... I mean, I've done loads of uh, snake education with kids, and really, all you have to do... I mean, it's not just kids. It's like, I keep snakes, and... It's like grandparents as well. If someone comes over and it's just like, oh, I'm deathly afraid of snakes. You're like, 
go on, touch one. <laughs> and then they do, and they're like, oh my God, they're amazing. And it's like, that's really all it takes to um, completely shift. And I mean, it's obviously a different scenario, and you have to be uh, sensitive to the fact that people are living alongside animals which have the capacity to be exceptionally dangerous. Yeah. And in, in an agricultural setting, that's like, that's not an easy way to live. Um, it's nope. V- so you do have to understand that. But I think if you get people and really, you know, they learn the facts and um, realize that the likelihood of being killed, certainly by a king cobra, is so unbelievably negligible. And then once they understand, you know, their actual role in the ecosystem, and I mean, they actually actively seek out and destroy the snakes, which are more dangerous to people. Um, which yeah, I'm always, I'm always a little bit... a good angle because it's like, exactly. well, you're kind of justifying the fear there, but... Um, exactly. It's always out of, out of the out of the frying pan into the uh, yeah. fire. Okay, yeah. more snakes are going to be persecuted because of that. Yeah, I don't, I don't think you should... You, yeah, no. you, don't, you shouldn't make them green pit vipers in the crates pariahs in return for saving King Cobras. But like, no, no. Um, yeah, I think it takes effort and it takes time for attitudes to shift towards being more positive. But it's totally doable. I think think so. I think also as shifts happen in terms of like the 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 two sort of golden uh, things that you you see no matter where you are dealing with snake bite stuff, it always comes up with if people are wearing shoes that are closed toe, so you're not being bit on the foot accidentally, and you've got a light so you can spot things at night, um, and you're also not actively trying to hurt the animal, the chances of being bitten are greatly diminished. Um, or at least that's that's certainly what's said across uh, Asia where snake bites are... Well, and Africa where snake bites are a serious problem in like rural communities and things. Whether that fully solves the problem, I don't know. Probably not. You probably need a bit of... Like all these things, you're going to need a bit of both. You're going to need a bit of education. You're going to need a bit more wealth in these places so people can sort of not be uh, not be pushed to a sort of do or die attitude. Um, it's got to come from both ways, doesn't it? Yeah. Snakes snakes are doing their part. They're giving people every opportunity not to get bitten by trying to sneak around the place and stay out of the way. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely. I don't true. think there's I don't think there's many snakes going out of their way to go bite people. <laughs> uh, don't get many bad seeds. Problem snakes. <laughs> No. Don't think don't think that's a thing. But um I think what we can take away from both these papers is that like king cobras are you know, they're pretty incredible animals and um as far as snakes yeah. go, they've got a lot obviously they are snakes, but there's some really unique things about their behaviour, their ecology, um, you know, and obviously their size. Every you know, they are a special case and um They are a yeah, special case. They definitely warrant the effort which is put into protecting them, not only in Thailand but also in India. There's massive amounts of effort. Um yep. so yeah, I and, think, and uh, Nepal. And the pool as well. Uh, yeah. yeah, there's efforts in the pool as well. I mean there's efforts in various places other than what we've said there. There are efforts in various places and they are making a difference. And a lot of the education I think is 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 making a big difference. Just sort of as you say, the more you know about a thing, the less you're going to fear it. And the less you fear it, the less you're going to strike out in response to seeing it. So, Yeah. Here's to many more years of king cobras roaming the forests, agricultural areas. And in safety. <laughs> swampy canals. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Uh, cool. So I think uh, that brings us tidily on to the, uh, 
Species of the bye week. Oh, yes. So, there's some big hitters in this... Um, yeah, there are. ...author list here. Portillo, Branch, Tilbury, Nagy, Hughes, Kasamba, Meninga, Aristote, Behangana, and Greenball. 2019, mm. a new species, a new cryptic species of Polemon. Not from just the Miombo, any old species. <laughs> yeah, from the Miombo woodlands of Central and East Africa. Mm. Now, okay. if you search for Polemon, and you think, oh yeah, I'm going to see what these snakes look like. Um, Google will think you're searching for Pokemon. Pokemon, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Pokemon. Yeah. Now, I suppose Pokemon Snake, you'll just end up with Ekis or whatever the... Come on, mate. You know better yeah. than that. It's, uh, it's Ekans. It's Snake backwards. Ekans. Yeah. My bad. Evolving um, into Arbok. Arbok, Which is Cobra course. backwards with an unexplained K. Yup. Yup. Don't... Stunning. <laughs> you never, you've never caught them all, have you? <laughs> <laughs> no, not even close. <laughs> Rubbish. Okay, yeah. So we're leaving Asia. We're entering Africa. Uh, the genus Polemon, which as Ben's pointed out, is Pokemon with an L, had 13 species across Central, East and Western Africa. They're small snakes, okay? So we're not talking about King Cobras. They're not long or large. They generally don't exceed 80 centimetres, but they are brutal hunters of guess what? Elephants. Elephants. Yep. They only eat the babies. <laughs> um, they have to get them real, real young. <laughs> they're really they stretchy. <laughs> they nibble at them. No, they're not. They're hunting snakes, which is why uh, they're relevant to this episode. Because Ophiophagus Hannah, the king cobra, is an Ophiophagus snake. So is this. And um, one of the common names for the genus Polemon is snake eaters. So um, mm. they're secretive. They're super sneaky. They live underground. They're fossorial. They mostly eat typhlopid snakes, which is kind of so-called blind snakes although they're not actually blind in most cases uh and yeah they're really famous this genus because they can eat prey which is almost the same size as themselves that's ambitious yeah i mean i'll tackle a domino's large pizza now and again but you're not not going to eat a pizza the size and shape of yourself are you highly improbable no i mean number one it would have to be a calzone Yes, it would. Yes, it would. And I actually, I don't take offence at that because I am three-dimensional. Um, and that's <laughs> yeah, okay. I'm, yeah. You know, it wasn't meant It wasn't meant as a slight. I think if I'm I was going to something... If you were going to make a humanoid pizza person, you wouldn't make it out of pizzas, <laughs> you make it out of calzones. I think if I was going to eat something exactly the same size and shape as myself, it would be one of those like Easter bunny type deals made of chocolate. Oh, so it'd be hollow. No, it would be obviously it would have to be solid. Um, okay, because otherwise it wouldn't be the same weight as me. I think the only way you could eat that much in one sitting would you'd have to make it out of some like very light sorbet. <laughs> um, oh god. Okay. So anyway, <laughs> these snakes are famous for eating big prey. Um, there's a Cassamba et al. 2018 paper, and Cassamba actually appears on the authorship of this. And, uh, yeah, in 2018, they did a paper where uh, Polamon fulvicollis grauri, which actually might just be Polamon grauri now, might have changed since, uh, I'm not sure. There was another, there was a big um, 
Shake phylogeny up. paper in 2018, which was kind of the inspiration for this paper describing the new species. But anyway, this Polamon fulvicolis grauri, or just grauri, which is another Polamon species, ate an Afrotyphlops cf punctatus, which means it looks to be a Afrotyphlops punctatus. I think the head was digested, so can't be sure. But anyway, uh, there's an island, an island within a lake. The lake's called Lake Kivu. It's in it's far east of the Democratic Republic of Congo. Uh, there's an island called Idri, and um, basically this snake ate this blind snake, and they were basically the same size. It was ridiculous. So the prey's length was 365 millimeters. The predator's length was 388 millimeters. So it was like 94% of the snake's own length it ate. It must um, have got all squished up like a concertina. Well, like it, they can't fit in the tail, can they? It's interesting you say that because I looked at the paper and there was a photo of this comically bloated snake. But you know when you see like a coral snake, you see those videos of them eating something and it's like you can see there's like an S going down the snake. Yeah. It's obviously, it's not yeah. like that. It's just a big bloated snake. It's almost like... I don't understand how it's even possible. Um, Maybe yeah, they just it crush look, them. Perhaps one... The thing is, with a, with these Afro-Typhlops, they're, they're basically like a sausage, right? They're not... They don't yeah. have like a defined thin or thick portion. They're basically like a perfectly... Shoelace. Well, more like... More like a sausage, because they're like cylindrical. <laughs> <laughs> um, but anyway... Right, the weight they, the weight ratio was ridiculous as well. It weighed like sixty one point five percent of the predator's body, um, and the diameter of the prey related to the diameter of the predator was like seventy five percent. So basically, the vast majority of the inside of this polamon snake was was just another snake. Of, yeah, um, <laughs> and they caught the snake, and they were like, you know, they they kept it as a specimen. So they got the snake out, and they were just staggered. So these. These Polemon, not only are they snake eaters, I mean, obviously that's a different species, but to put it in context, they can eat monster amounts of food. And um, yeah, there was another paper in 2018 where Portillo et al. suggested there was two distinct genetic units in Polemon christii. And so that's where this new species came from. There's one in Uganda, which is the type locality. So that one got to keep the name christii. And there's another population in the southeastern Democratic Republic of the Congo, uh, which is been given this new name it's the new species um and they did that based on molecular differences and mm. there's a few diagnostic differences in morphology and um yeah this lineage from southeastern drc has been named polamon atrum which apparently is latin atrum means like grayish black um, which is a perfect describer because it, it is, is grayish uh black sorry yeah <laughs> They've got the name from Atrium, but the actual um, species name is Polamon Ata. Yes. So if someone ever asks you, hey, what happened to that chubby little typhlopid snake? Oh, it ate her. <laughs> Polamon Ata. Ate her up. Yeah? Get it? Yeah. Mm. I, I do. I, I, I wonder if it's, if, it's, if it's too hard to get, though. Um. <laughs> so this let's move on this snake's in the family Lamprophidae subfamily Aparalactinae which I'd not heard of um, yeah I think it's because Lamprophidae used to be a subfamily until relatively recently did it not? I don't know I get confused I'm pretty it. sure they were all grouped in with everybody's favourite snake family uh, Colubrids 
and now and then it was a subfamily and then it's elevated to full family i think i think that's the way it went okay yeah i haven't seen the paper might be why we're a little bit uh like a a subfamily within that has caught us off guard well it used to be easier didn't it it used to be either elapidae viperidae (laughs) buridae or colubridae and then it was like you know the sea snake ones, whatever. But now, <laughs> and there are others as well. Uh, but now, oh, it's all chaos, you know. Well, it's all chaos, but it's still got a long way to go because let's face it, Colubridae is still too big. Yeah. Oh, to for be sure. practical. Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, I guess it all depends on the old uh, monophyly, doesn't it? We'll see how it goes. Um, that that's that, that's somebody else's problem to handle. Yeah, I, will, I, I, will I mean, we their joke lead. about. Yeah, we joke about this stuff, but it is interesting. Um, well, it's so interesting anyway, and quite important. It is, yeah. So, um, especially when you're trying to work out what's a, you know, relevant biological unit for conservation, as we've talked about on the podcast before. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, this new species, Palemonata, it's endemic to the grasslands, Miombo woodlands, and possibly forest of southeastern DRC. Um, Miombo woodlands just look spectacular. Um, it's, to describe it, it looks very similar to dried up terracot forest. It in that looks unbelievably similar to dried up terracot forest. Yeah, there's like it's a little bit you know, thinly, thinly spread out trees. You know, beautiful trees with nice bark, and then um, there's this kind of sort of a period. It looks to be sort of waist high, lush green grass all around the trees. Um, perfect for a fossorial snake, I would imagine. Yeah, but yeah, this new species. Um, Although it's described from southeastern DRC, it's also likely to be from Zambia, West Central Tanzania, maybe even Rwanda, Burundi, and Malawi. They need to kind of do more study to find out, um, and possibly even Angola. So it could be quite a widespread species. More sampling needs to happen. It's under a few threats. So um, <laughs> no, farming, fa- yeah, obviously we've got to mention it. Farming management is not always good. Um, there's sometimes uncontrolled fires. There's m- risks from mining and other just general environmental degradation caused by Homo sapiens. So yeah, new species: Polamon, uh, Atta, and we haven't even described what it looks like. It's a cool little snake, really cool. Yeah, um, the way I, basically I said it was uh, reminded me of sunbeam snakes. Sunbeam snakes are these beautiful iridescent. Uh, Southeast Asian species, and these guys are a beautiful dark, rich black with slight, slight iridescence of the scales. I'd say certainly in the pictures there seems to be something going on there, and they're just oh, they're very very smart. Yeah, very smart. Jet black with crazy iridescence. Lovely. Not a super distinct head, but not completely indistinct as well. Not mm. like viper distinct. That's what I'm getting. No. At. Just a nice little cute snake. And um, the common name is the Black Snake Eater, which is, like, unbelievably badass. Pretty good. Pretty good. The Black Snake Eater. So, yeah. And we eat snakes, so it's nice and descriptive. Very, very cool snake. And they are um, rear-fanged. They've got a deeply grooved fang, which is behind the eye. Anterior? Oh, no, it's in front of the eye. Um, and then there's 12 other little teeth behind. Um, so yeah, they're, they're a rear fanged species, you would say. Um, which is entirely 
predictable given their family, right? Yes. Just worth mentioning. Um, In case you get bitten by one, just, uh, you know, stop it from biting you before it uh, can gnaw on you too much. Especially if you're holding your finger horizontally and it looks a lot like a delicious sausage snake because they'll go for you. They'll go for you. <laughs> and they re- reach a knuckle and just sort of... <laughs> I don't know, stop, I guess. I don't really know what a snake would do if it... Well, by then you'll have been envenomated, so you at least you'll have something interesting to write up. <laughs> Maybe. I presume they've got some sort of some sort of venom. Yeah, it must be there doing something to a potentially to a snake. Maybe it just chills the snake out because if you ate a snake, I mean, they're not. I don't imagine they're going to be constricting these. Uh, perhaps no. they are constricting, but if they're not, then no. um, you know, if you swallow a giant sausage the size of your own body, you're going to want to subdue it slightly so it's not wriggling around <laughs> in there. Otherwise, <laughs> sounds really unpleasant. Sounds, sounds really, horrible. really unpleasant. Makes me feel sick. Yeah. Oh. Um, you're basically you're basically just the. The skin of a sausage, or the, or the sort of sort of bready base of a cow's own. <laughs> um, <laughs> so yeah, the black snake eater, Polemon eater, cool paper, and beautiful um, snake. I hope we've done it justice. Um, yeah, great papers, good hustle. Um, it's I love doing ones where they're papers that I say we've published. So far, it's been mostly you, but um. I'm sure I'll be playing catch up in the next few years. Oh yeah, there's no doubt there. Yeah, but it was really interesting, and um, yeah, nice to actually sit and take the time to thoroughly, thoroughly digest them. Always like reading about king cobras, and especially as some of these snakes, I actually kind of well, I heard tell of them. I didn't know any of these individuals, but hopefully, when the next ones come out, it'll be snakes no, you, that you, we you actually did, know. You did know. You knew over thirteen. You tracked over thirteen. Oh, I did, didn't I? Yeah, that's true, yeah. that's true. Yeah. At the time we turned up and got absolutely no signal, and we're like, oh, great, he's done a runner again, yeah. as Bertine always used to do. Got did one just day. That, that smidge of signal <laughs> on top of a mound. Next thing you know, you're 1.1 kilometers away, and he's hiding under a log next to a road. Yeah, that was very, that was fun. One day of King Cobra tracking was enough, though. It's a lot of effort. <laughs> <laughs> tracking 13 was a lot of effort, that's for damn sure. Yeah, I'm ho- I'm hoping to be doing some radio telemetry of my very own in the next couple of months. So um, yeah, I'm really, really, really looking forward to doing that again. Um, I'm I'm looking forward to uh, seeing what you find out. Yeah, that it should is, be cool. Yeah, yeah, sweet. Well, uh, and if I have any questions about the analysis, I know where to come. <laughs> oh, I'm I'm hoping by the time you've got data, I'm gonna have a very very nice workflow set up for uh, snake spatial ecology stuff. Sweet. Well, perhaps I'll be having the opportunity to cite you early on. Um, Yeah, well, I hope everyone's enjoyed that episode. I hope it's given you a bit more insight of kind of what Ben and um, his colleagues have been up to and me by vague extension at points. And uh, yeah, we're next couple of episodes are going to be selected by listeners. I won't spoil what they're going to be, but... um, there's some pretty cool topics upcoming, actually. I'm really looking forward to the next couple yes. as well. Um, so, yeah. Um, any other business? We did have a question. We had a question. From, well, we had a few questions from Jennifer Sager. Jennifer, okay. if you're listening, we decided we're going to make them into kind... We're going to do a mini episode where we're going to answer some questions. So it won't be in this episode, but we're coming back. Um, and aside from that, we've 
got oh we have one correction oh yes which is my bad uh rob ward dr rob ward who published the grass snake paper that we uh the m mixtures and stuff that we did last episode he got in touch and um he told me that i misspoke on the podcast i said that jersey is governed by the uk which is a massive faux pas they have their own government so uh yeah, sorry if anyone from Jersey heard that and was just like, you ignorant buffoon! <laughs> um, <laughs> that's yeah, it. that's my bad. I just, never I just assumed. Again. Should never assume. Because no, it, no, you shouldn't. Sorry. Yeah, but um, no, it was really nice. Both uh, Isabella and Rob got in touch with us from the last episode and um, yeah, enjoyed the coverage of their work. So that was nice. Uh, Unbelievable yeah. relief. There's always that fear <laughs> yeah. of having horribly misrepresented somebody's work because that is not what, you know, we, we don't want to be putting spins on what people have, have put. We just want to report what they're, basically what they're saying in a slightly more digestible format. That's uh, the aim. Misrepresenting it would be, <laughs> would be horrible. Deeply stressful. Yeah. So, um, yeah, I think that probably just pretty much wraps up. Um if you've enjoyed the podcast, please consider leaving us a review uh, on whatever you get your podcast apps on. And oh, are we mentioning the T-shirt? Oh, we could. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So Ben has used his artistic flair and created a new T-shirt to coincide with the release of our King Cobra episode, and it's got King Cobras on it. Well, and it's, it, it's also not. It, you don't have to get it on a T-shirt. You could get That's a nice true. King Cobra mug King if Cobra you don't mug. want a t-shirt. King Cobra, you can get King Cobra yoga pants. They don't... Potentially. I, think, I don't think I, the design actually, really looks no, great. Yeah, because yeah, I... Might not be able to get that. Yeah, I was actually recently hanging out with some people and I was like, oh yeah, we've got a shop. And they were like, oh, let's check it out. And they got up a pair of yoga pants with like a logo <laughs> that didn't really fit on them. And they were like, yeah, your shop your shop sucks, mate. And I was like, oh. Yeah. You're an embarrassment. So, yeah, it was like... Call yourself herpetological highlights, do you? Yeah. More like um, lowlights. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. But um, yeah, you can get the mug or the t-shirt, but it's awesome design. Like when Ben showed me, I was very excited. I think I made a little noise. So yeah, get them, check it out. And uh, yeah, yeah I think they, it's will, gonna... they will be up to coincide with this episode's release is the plan. If they're not, they will be up immediately after very very shortly after it's all done yeah. it's all ready to go excellent so if you want to get in touch with us herphighlights at gmail.com facebook slash herphighlights and we are on twitter at herphighlights and um, yeah get in touch with us if we've made any mistakes I mean it's hopefully inevitable. there won't be any hopefully there might be corrections from the uh, from the last paper if anyone knows Ben's paper better than Ben get in touch with us <laughs> make, make us look foolish Ooh, but, that's, um, that'd be a, that'd be a, that'd be an interesting I mean that could only come from a few people <laughs> yeah good it would be jokes uh, but, you know, I, I could have genuinely made a mistake about <laughs> either one of them it's easy to do man there's it a lot is, of numbers yeah. a lot of things to keep keep track of you managed to correct me the few times I deliberately made mistakes to test you so um, yeah that was that was it keeps keeps me on my toes. That's appreciate it. <laughs> uh, yeah, but anyway, I think that all that remains to say is thank you for listening. Yeah, thank you for listening.
No, I'm just gonna. I'm gonna mumble on. Yeah. I'm gonna oh, mumble yeah. on about the, the tragic fate of our tracked king cobras. Hi, I'm Ben Marshall, and um, today we're <laughs> talking about my favourite snake. I'm not that enthused. Um, you know, take them or leave them. Take them or leave them. They've got big scales on their heads. They're kind of weird.